Welcome to A Retro Perspective, a video game podcast that takes a look at long-running franchises, one game at a time. This season, we're taking a look at Nintendo's flagship IP, The Legend of Zelda. If you're just now joining us, we recommend beginning your journey with episode one. With that out of the way, I'm Carly. And I'm Kyler. Let's get started. fair to consider Zelda 2 Adventure of Link the most divisive game in the Zelda series, although the sting of its drastic design departure has faded over the years. While the game has a contingent of ardent supporters, it can leave new players hurling their controllers at the wall. Shigeru Miyamoto himself has described the game as a failure, but why? Serving as a producer on Zelda 2, Miyamoto was looking to make a side-scrolling action game that allowed for more robust combat. As Miyamoto tells it, the game they ended up with is largely the game they had set out on paper. Not much an iteration or innovation came through in the design process itself, leaving what some may consider an uninspired result. It's interesting to look at Zelda 2 as a genre mishmash, games experimentation and definition happening in real time, footsteps that a game like Blaster Master would later follow. Limited by the hardware capabilities of the day, Zelda 2 combined elements that had already been seen before in games but in a new package, a world map with encounters and experience points borrowed from RPGs, side-scrolling action seen in Metroid and Castlevania, and a life system like that of Super Mario Bros. What came of it is a game that's difficult to place. It occupies a space that hasn't really been picked up in modern games since. A game like the original Legend of Zelda is a little easier to crack. It has elements unique to its specific entry, but it established an easily recognizable genre. A genre it helped to create by iterating on itself from the Super Nintendo onward. But what to make of Zelda 2? So before we get into talking about how we like the game, I would like to just remark that this is actually the second time that we've recorded this podcast episode. The first time we recorded it, uh, all of my audio got corrupted and we didn't find out until after, you know, two hours of recording when I played it back and I realized that it had been skipping in a bunch of places. It's fantastic. Um, Yeah, we stayed up till like 2 a.m. recording it. Uh, We were very exhausted and I was very sad. Um, I'm still really annoyed about that, but I also think that it's a perfect microcosm of exactly how I feel about this game. (laughs) (laughs) Lots and lots of work, um, only to be cut off at your shins, um, and left to bleed out on the floor. So Kyler, how did you like the game? Well, (laughs) oh, oh boy. So... Just as a quick like history bit as well, you know, I played I played this uh, the original back as far as um, as the NES, but you know, most of my history with this game has been through a couple of different re-releases like the GBA NES Classics, um, and especially the Zelda Collector's Edition. But our current playthroughs were on the 3DS and Nintendo Switch Online, and thank goodness for that, because we'll go ahead and freely admit that we did use save states to some degree on it. Copious. Hopious amounts, of, shameful amounts of shameful. save states. Shameful. Yeah, <laughs> I don't feel. I'm not proud of myself. I tried not to, but at a certain point, you just got to do what you got to do to get yeah. to get to the credits. This game, uh, so I'm mixed, and and the reason is because I would say the core gameplay on the whole generally works. There's there's I have some like you know some issues here and there with it, but on the whole. Like what needs to work the most with it, it works and it works really well. The real issue is that there's conflicts within its design that end up resulting in an experience that has that's far more frustrating than it has any business being. 
And, you know, unlike, say, the original Legend of Zelda, which there were maybe, like, small flaws within just the way certain things were laid out or, like, limitations they couldn't necessarily get around, Zelda 2, there's just clear conflict in the design, in its sense. And what, what it results is an experience that might seem to be intended to be intimidating, and which, you know, we'll get to later as far as theming, it, it, it's a good fit. But in terms of just actually creating an experience that's both enjoyable in its challenge and fits its theme well, it's just more frustrating and tedious than anything else because of it. So so for the uninitiated, the general gameplay of this game is that you kind of have like a world map similar to sort of your Final Fantasy. You walk out there, you kind of have random encounters, and then you enter an action screen that you can move from left to right, and you fight enemies in a side-scrolling combat sort of way. If you defeat enemies, you get experience points, you use experience points to upgrade your magic, your life, and your attack power. And then you go into palaces, and, and, and most of the act, like all the action in the combat takes place on like those left to right action screens and in palaces. The, the weird conundrum system in this is that you also have a life system. So what happens is you have like three lives to start out with. And if you die and you lose all of your lives, then you start back at the Eastern Palace, the very first screen of the game, and you lose all of your experience. It kind of, I don't know, it kind of works to lengthen the game, but it mostly kind of feels like padding, and it it turns into this sort of thing where you're like grinding in a Zelda game, and it's weird. It's just wrong. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the reason, <laughs> I don't know, it's the reason that I use save states. I didn't use save states in the original game, there wasn't a point, it's just that with this game, you get you reach certain points where you're, say, 200 experience points away from a level, but your next room is the boss, so then you might go back, and it forces you to do a lot of things that I, I don't think was the designer's intention, but it's like the path to the least amount of suffering <laughs> that you play the game that way. Yeah, I think it's just the game kind of gets in the way of itself in terms of, I think, just allowing you to really feel like you're free to explore things in a sense. If we're talking about in like embracing, at the very least, the spirit of the original game. Zelda 2 as a follow-up, you know, it's one thing to change focuses by and large, um, especially with a, with a follow-up game that Miyamoto wasn't necessarily as involved in. I mean, he was a, he was a producer, but he, he wasn't necessarily the director in this case. So, like, a lot of the choices were out of his hands. But really, the, the system's in place. Yeah, just between the, the live system, between the way your health is kind of partitioned. Again, in terms of, like, the challenge itself, like, taken on its, on its own, it's hard. It's a hard game. It's definitely very challenging. I would say... 85% of the time though it's a it's a fair game for sure definitely fair yeah it is it is for the most part fair and there's there's examples that we'll get to that are unbelievably stupid but overall when it's you know meant to kind of really tax your resources and really make you parse out your magic carefully and whatnot so that you can kind of keep yourself alive but, you know make sure you have enough on standby for other purposes it's good. It's it's really there's a lot of good challenges overall that help make use of this. But overall, when it comes to you know, there's of course later in the game, the, it just kind of throws this out the window. It's just it's too punishing. It's too punishing in regards to the way. I mean, just getting sent back. That's just pure tedium on its own right. Having to travel all that, especially if you're like deep in a palace and whatnot, you're like near the end of it, and then you just happen to get knocked in the lava or something stupid like that. Yeah, and it's like, it's punishing in a way that's like really more so annoying than gratifying to conquer because 
if you, you can conquer like the combat challenges and like try to take the least amount of hits and try to like make your resources go as far as possible. But at the same time, it's just extremely frustrating to lose a lot of progress. So it's almost like you start doing sort of like risk avoidance at a certain point because it, it takes away any desire to explore or go any further than you have to because why do you want to take more hits or do more damage or whatnot? And then you start, you know, doing very like risk averse behaviors like going and grinding. And then when you get a little low on health then you go to a town, you heal up and you go back and then... I don't know. I just think like psychologically it has like a really, really different effect than the original game where even though I died tons and tons of times, it still felt compelled to go out into the world and sort of explore it. And I feel like this game is kind of mean in that way that like you don't have rupees. Like the only thing that you get from killing monsters is magic refills, which allow you to keep going or experience points. So those are the only things. It's not like you can get rupees and then get killed and then be like, oh, well, at least I got some rupees or at least I found this thing or whatever. And like I made some progress with those hearts. It's just kind of like screw you. Like there's no you don't really get it's just really frustrating to get a game over in this game. And for how difficult it is, I just think that it I don't know, the game over function in the live system feels like it's there to make sure that it takes me longer to beat the game and for no other compelling reason. I'm sure for like hardcore people that it's like super cool that they can like do deathless runs and whatnot, but just for like a person trying to like beat the game, I don't really find it fun. Like I beat all of the enemies and did the thing. Did I necessarily do it all without save stating? No. <laughs> But why would I want to? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those games that I end up revisiting more out of a sense of curiosity before I recognize, oh yeah, there's this whole ordeal. I don't really want to I don't really want to It's do such this a anymore. bummer cuz I used to give Kyler a lot of crap for liking this game <laughs> cuz it just really I'm also not really a side-scrolling action person. I'm just not very good at it. So I wasn't really super hot on this game from a combat perspective. But I, I, it definitely, like, the combat is super sound. And, like, actually, you, you definitely like the first game. You can learn it. You can get good at it. There's only a few enemies that I think are legitimately just, like, cheap. Where it's like, why do you exist? Yeah. Um, whatever, like, the dog head looking things that, yeah. like, spit at you and also take away experience points and health. Because uh, there's enemies that do that, that attack you and hurt you and also take experience points away because that was something we wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a couple enemies that are infinitely responsible in particular and the, the two in particular that are terrible are the, the dragon heads, which always like to show up in places where there are instant death pits. Yes. And then the dog heads, which are specifically set up to show up in a way where it's like, oh, I need to break these blocks below me to get a key but when you do that the result is in order to get back out it's a tedious affair and then you're being assaulted by these constantly spawning dog heads that shoot beams that you can block with your shield but the problem is once there's at least three on screen facing either direction whether it's in front of you or both sides they just are slowly enclosing on you while you're almost you're guaranteed to take it it's impossible you just have to like cast shield and just like hope for the best yeah. like hope that you have a good round because it's yeah it's a nightmare it's yeah. things like that yeah, I hate the infinitely respawning enemies, enemies that take away experience away. It's just kind of mean. I honestly, 
I don't know. If I was a kid playing this on the NES, I might have just quit video games <laughs> and looked at it and been like, there's nothing here for me. Or I would have been super into it. But as a as an adult now, it feels at times very disrespectful of my time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to death penalties in games at all. Like I, I love, I've loved playing Hollow Knight, which kind of has a similar MO to this game in some ways. You know, that sort of soulsy, oh, you die and there's a death penalty you gotta collect and all those sort of things. And, but with this game, yeah, it's just that the systems, the systems all counteract with each other in really weird ways. And I think it's commendable that they did something that was really exploratory in games. But, you know, there's elements from all of these different ideas. And it was kind of like they were sort of building these genres at the time. They didn't even know they were genres. And you have all of these things coming together, these different gameplay styles. And, you know, I think it's like it's interesting to see at this level because you can see how different games work, how they mesh together, like what sort of combinations can work. Yeah, I mean, and I, every time I play this, though, you realize that, like, if you take the life system out, you're going to be hit with a problem, which is, oh, well, you can just infinitely get experience and get better at the game. And, like, you know, then there's no challenge or there is challenge, but then you can't upgrade anymore. So the life system is just in there to kind of lengthen out the process of of upgrading your character. But I think that psychologically what the player tries to do to get around that and counteract that is sort of the antithesis of what a Zelda game should be. That's that's really like kind of the the mark of bad game design. I'm not saying like is it like Adventure Link is a poorly designed game, but rather the effects that end up crippling it, like hamstringing the experience as much as it does. It's usually when you have kind of systems in place that like ultimately when your resolution, when you like, we were like, okay, if we were to address this, how will we take care of this? The result, like if the result isn't like, oh, you have to like, you can't just, if you can't just partly rebalance things to kind of get them into a better place, then you know that like fundamentally there's issues going on with it. And so, you know, you consider the, the original Legend of Zelda, which, you know, effectively was like, okay, you pretty much have his much life as you can find heart containers and that ex the most extension you get to that life is the blue and red rings which increase your defense and then you have uh, after that you have life medicine of which you can get up to two doses of basically to give you two full life bars which you absolutely do need in that game and so you have you know still finite resources but you still have some degree of pretty easily gauging what you can you know what you need and like what you can bring to each you know dungeon as you're approaching it but much of adventure of link is designed on beating you half to death to getting to the palace that by the time you get there you're already in trouble i think really the core problem with the life system is it makes you more expendable in a way that you can't really counteract besides having more levels and then there's a still a hard cap on that which does balance the game at least reasonably like there is a hard cap to how strong you can get and as far as like, you know, heart containers go, and I guess in this case, in this game's case, magic containers, you know, you can get basically double with what you started with, which is still not a lot, but it's still, you know, it's still something. The live system is a thing that makes you expendable, but in a way that's not really comfortable, like losing a live in like Super Mario Brothers, like, you know, there's a way to build up lives, even if there's some degree of control the developers have placed over allowing, you know, preventing that, except for, you know, glitches or whatever. But even apart from that, it was okay for you to feel expendable because you were expendable to begin with. But in Zelda 2, where it feels like you're already trying to push resources, it makes anything that really 
pushes against that, like especially instant death pits. I I can't comprehend <laughs> why, because they they deliberately set up traps in such a way that they're trying to get you hit into them to begin with, and making you that expendable. Like this is Super Mario Brothers here. Like Castlevania has the same thing as well, but there's like the the fact that it goes stage by stage plays a large part in alleviating that. It means that you're trying to tackle individual challenges as you progress through it. And there's restorative items here and there if you know where to look and kind of what to look out for to begin with. In Zelda 2, there there are some instances like instances like that, but it being kind of a long form action game versus like a more short term action game like Castlevania, there it just doesn't it doesn't really jive as well as it should and i really think it would have the game would have benefited a lot being designed more around the degree of i guess expendability per se that the original legend of zelda had but like apart from that it just ends up creating all these kinds of problems that make it more annoying to deal with i wish that this game like especially because there's so many talents in this game i think it would have been so nice if rupees had made a return in this game because thinking about the idea of like if you could have bought extra lives or bought magic potions or bought life potions like there's so many other things that you could have bought with rupees that okay you can keep the life system but say if you collect these other things then you can also do this or if they just uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the system kind of, the more I think about it, I think that the system of experience points, oh, that's so cool. You can level up in a Zelda game. It's like an RPG. But then you, the more you think about it, at the end of the day, if you fill out all of these things and they're all at the max level by the time that you go to the final dungeon, does it really make that much of a difference? Is it really that much more different than just getting a heart container at the end of every level like you used to, it's kind of an illusion of freedom where one doesn't really exist. Like the experience points needed start climbing. So it's not like you could just say, I'm going to be dedicated to life and get all of those. The game is still going to push you in some sort of progression in which the least experience points, you know, you're probably going to go with that option. I don't know. So the more I think about it, the more I think that it doesn't even really succeed in the vein of player choice because that choice doesn't even really exist. And it's not really that much different than just your general skill and strength progression in the original game other than uh, it's kind of taken away more options. I'm being much harder on it in that regard <laughs> right now than, than I have been previously where I've felt like, oh, well, that's so cool. You have the experience points and all of that sort of thing. But the point of experience points and the point of leveling up in something like Final Fantasy is it's because of the way the game operates and that you're basically just picking functions and the characters execute them. Those experience points are meant to represent your skill and the character's skill getting stronger. So then they get stronger and the numbers get bigger. But in a game like The Legend of Zelda, generally they don't have experience points because the game is supposed to teach you how to play it. It's going to force you to get stronger through other upgradable means. You're gonna fight against harder enemies and you're going to have the experience of playing the game and doing the combat system and that's how you level up internally so to have it explicitly in this game like this yeah i don't know they could have just thrown heart containers and magic containers on the field in other places and you could have found them and it honestly probably would have been a better game for it but hot takes <laughs> <laughs> some fun new information on the second pass through 
<laughs> yeah, I, the, I mean, the first time we recorded this, I think I spent most of my time just like yelling about the game, being like, ah, it's so stupid. And now that I've gotten all of that like out of my system and I'm truly reflecting on the game, I'm almost like, wow, this game is pointless. This game it's is not, pointless. It's not pointless. It's, it's not, not, but it has its. It's not pointless. Yeah, no, that's a good point about the experience system, especially because it kind of drives the point home about. You know, the original Legend of Zelda being a game being pioneered by, you know, the player in their exploration. And Adventure of Link makes a lot fewer opportunities from and in ways that are ironically not even nearly as intuitive either. You know, for the most part, it's most of the discoveries are intuitive, but there's a few that are kind of bizarre and out of nowhere. I don't want to say that they didn't know what they're doing because the people designing these games are smarter about games than I ever will be. <laughs> but... I will say this, the the mixture of all of these game systems, I think that this is still so sort of young in gaming's history that my, I would wager, I guess, like people, like the designers didn't know what they had in a way that seems kind of obvious to us today that we have various set ideas of shooters and party games and racing games. We have like a very clear, distinct idea of gaming genres and even the use of the word genre in gaming. It, it's very strange because that's not how genre works in other forms of media where to suggest different types of storytelling, but we have co-opted that in gaming to just suggest it's this kind of game and we package games in a certain way so that it's very clear to everyone involved what type of game, what sort of gameplay is expected, what sort of sequences are expected. And when you start mashing them up too much, you see these systems that are very successful on their own, they start getting tweaked and tampered with. And ultimately, as much flack as I give a game like this, like this sort of experimentation and weirdness also needed to exist because it's also through the clarity of this game's existence and our experiences playing with it and seeing how these systems sort of fight each other in a way that we're also able to learn why these things also say separate so much of the time. You know, it it's very frustrating to me to play, and I don't necessarily recommend playing it, but as sort of a historical vehicle, I think it's very interesting to look at and to learn from. And whenever we ask those questions like day to day, we're like, oh, why hasn't someone made a game like this? Or why do all the games feel the same? Like, I think you see designers going to the things and the feedback loops that they know work. And you can see even just a game like this where one small wrench where you go, oh yeah, people love that in this game. And you put it into this game and all of a sudden it's psychological warfare with <laughs> everything that made this other game in the series great. And now it's fighting itself. It's... <laughs> wow, I don't know how that noise came out of I my throat. Summoned yeah, there was there. like something came out of me just now, like some <laughs> whisper of God. Uh, maybe you shouldn't play this game. That maybe, might be a warning. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe not. Well, but like even yeah, there's. I think it's a good point about modern games, especially that kind of do the same thing. I haven't. I mean, I won't remark on commenting on a lot of these games in detail, but like even just consider even just consider the amount of games that have included a crafting system and RPG like stats or leveling or gear systems in the same manner that just kind of like when you look at it, you're like, I'm like, okay, it's all been put in place and like set into the game, but like, did it need this? I think like. I didn't play it. I didn't play the new God, God of War. That's because I don't I don't own a PS4 or anything like that. But like, I, you know, I've read plenty about it. But, you know, most hack and slash games, especially unless you're like 
Dynasty Wars, but like just an action hack and slash game that's like mostly like the damage is kind of set in stone, so they can kind of balance enemies around that uh, on a lot of them. Um, I mean, even just earlier uh, God of War games or like Devil May Cry, you know, usually damage is just a thing that's kind of assigned to each of the different kinds of moves. And that it's a matter of mastery that's going to kind of determine how well you can deal damage. You know, the new God of War, just because it just needs to have some kind of mainstream appeal, just arbitrarily includes these systems. But then the enemies, like the way they react to your moves is based on your level in a sense. And it's something that you can't like easily gauge. It's kind of arbitrary. And it greatly affects your ability to like actually assess the field proper in that sense. So I'm not going to speak any further on that. This is more coming from, you know, critics who have spoken in great detail. But like, it's really just to kind of make a point that like, again, just having like arbitrarily include, like nowadays compared to Zelda 2, which was more trying a mishmash of different things. You know, there's a lot of games nowadays, big mainstream games that just include skill points, skill trees, you know, RPG mechanics and whatnot, just for the sake of having some kind of needless padding that kind of gets an easy, yeah, again, an easy feedback loop from the player that's like, hey, I'm arbitrarily growing in ways that, you know, are easily quantified rather than in a way that's meant to be like more directly rewarding in that sense. And so I would say that at least Zelda 2, when it comes to like the pure gameplay, it it works and you do have, you have to get good at the game to succeed. Um, but at the same time, the the level system brought in place is, you know, not even comparable to the way that you would grow in the original game. In that sense, it just doesn't help. It doesn't help mark your growth very well. And the only thing that really helps denote that is the, basically, you know, your gathering of spells and you uh, and finding, you know, heart containers and magic containers and whatnot. But outside of that, it just it is in a sense kind of arbitrary. It's hard because I think it's actually pretty well balanced in that it stays very difficult the whole way through. And I think that, you know, I think that's a strength. It feels like an accomplishment to take on, you know, other enemies. But at the same time, you can fight the earliest iron knuckle. And by the end of the game, it feels nice to be able to take it out really, really easily. You know, so it has a nice mix of progression and consistent difficulty. I think the troubling thing perhaps is that it takes away your options and how you want to confront that difficulty. And I I don't really think that the levels make me feel stronger as much as they make me feel sort of consistent to the challenge that's being thrown at me. And it, you know, it is a rough spot to find. And a lot of games and Zelda games struggle with this, that uh, they might be difficult at the beginning, but by the time you get to the end, you're so beefed up that everything is a cakewalk. And it kind of loses its sort of sense of progression. It loses its sense of accomplishment. Even the original game struggles from that to a little bit of a degree that all of a sudden you're just a badass walking around on the field with a sword and you can kill any enemy on the field very easily. And it's a hard mixture to say, does that feel like power fantasy come to life in a positive way or does that take away the joy of difficulty and that might just depend on the player and ultimately i think with this game you know it does a good job with handling that but i still think with some sort of it needs (laughs) i i mean to another to some extent i would say the last thing this game needs is another system because it has a (laughs) lot of systems it's got an upgrade system it's got magic it's got upgradable sword moves like it's got you know experience points it's got all of this stuff but at the same time i 
really think that some sort of shop system, I won't even, I'm not even going to go on here and wax poetic about how there aren't items anymore and that's a big deal. <laughs> uh, with the way that sword combat is really focused on in this game, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not that important. But having the option to have some sort of inventory slot to be able to collect something keep it throughout game over so you still keep some sort of progression and that you could go to towns towns could have different items or you could get stronger potions or weaker potions or whatever even if nothing is discoverable on the field say you took away discoverable potions and then you just turned it all to a shop system just having that option i think i would really enjoy this game i would definitely want to play it feeling like i had some sort of sense of control that like oh i could store up or use some lives or it wouldn't have to be so finite it's just that the sense of loss when you get a game over and you lose experience points is so palpable that you never ever want to suffer or risk anything and i think with these games that's just not very fun so let's discuss uh presentation here i'll go ahead and say up front that this is this is pretty good compared to the rather simple appearance and pretty lightly animated sprites of the original Legend of Zelda. This is nice. You get, you know, in these 2D battle scenes, you're getting, you know, full, full profile shots of, of Link, plus many of the familiar enemies from the previous game and a lot of new enemies as well. And they're, they're very clearly distinguished. They're really well, like really nicely colored. I'd say just more than anything, kind of, you know, same praise, like, as if the original as for this game. When it comes to just the way, like, you know, enemy attacks, projectiles, and whatnot are handled, there's really very little in the way of problems. There's, you know, you're not, as far as when it comes to, like, the visuals in terms of, like, how it affects gameplay, it's, it almost never gets in the way of, you know, getting, like, cheap shots on you more than anything. There's, there's plenty of other stuff other than the visuals that will do that to you. But the visuals, the visuals itself, no, they they really won't get in the way of that in that sense. And so that's, that's all, you know, always something worth mentioning. Um, but apart from that as well, everything, especially in the 2D battle scenes, it looks good. It's, and again, just well presented and nicely, nicely detailed. And the sprites are, you know, again, clean links attack animations, especially just are pretty precisely denote like where his attacks are going to land. And uh, yeah, that's what I got to say on that for, you know, really as far as presentation goes yeah it's clean it works it it does its job it has a lot less tan i like that um no more weird green rock caves still still don't know what those were in the original game but i, I like the mystery so i just want to keep it mysterious it's fine <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean profile sprites totally help people with like an animation background or you know a concept you know, art character design background would, you know, we talk about silhouetting, things like that, that you can tell who a character is based on just what they look like in black and white. And profile, you know, portraits and things like that can also give a really strong sense of a character's appearance. So I think having that option in this game of having that profile view versus a top-down view, you know, the designs can come to life more. It works really well from a gameplay perspective because of how sword combat is set up. So, you know, it's all very clear. And I think the most visually impressive thing to me in this game uh, was when you get past of the river octopus critter. So when you get across the river and you play the flute for the octopus guy, 
you have these really nice set piece moments with like the walls and like these like lasalfos, <laughs> I guess, like throwing rocks over the walls yeah. and stuff. And you enter this whole new area. So it's cool how the game incorporates its overworld to side scrolling stuff and has set pieces that you kind of run through. And you it happens on the way to, I think, the third palace as well. Um, oh, yeah. Where you go through like kind of this sort of maze thing. And I, I really like the integration of those things. I think that that's kind of where you see the game working the best and molding those sort of styles together and the world feels very full and whatnot. And, you know, it's it can only be so exciting, but <laughs> I think that the way those things mesh and also just I'm going to call out like the addition of something like like the marshes, I think is a really cool and inspired mm. touch. And the way that those screens work and go from the left to right, I think that all feels really coherent and really nice. And it's cool to see, this is more of a gameplay thing, but it's cool to see how the slower movement in the marshes then translates to those gameplay scenes. And it's one of the few moments where you really get a sense that the world map and the world and the random encounters is very much linked together. Yeah, it has a sense of uh, life to it in a way that even like, I think even the original game didn't even have that that much, especially because most of the time the areas would just kind of dictate the kinds of enemies you'd be fighting. And this, in some way, that kind of helped tie the original game's like spaces up a bit, you know, a bit more together, like more thematically. Whereas here, you kind of you have both that with like within the battle scenes, you have kind of the unique enemies that spawn on different tiles, but it also in different areas in different parts of the world. But the set pieces also kind of help tie everything together in a way that makes them makes it very very visually distinct in a way that the original couldn't necessarily get that has a lot to do with the presentation of the world map in a way that's you know you feel like the world feels a lot bigger in that sense and that's also because what's sacrificed with it is that kind of more intimate these more intimate encounters with enemies directly on the map but you know the result is that the scope of the adventure you know it appropriately is the adventure of link and this the scope of it fits it well for that reason and so the presentation was altered to match and so you really don't getting lost is really not an issue in this game unless you've just literally completely forgot where you're supposed to go but the game is plenty linear enough that's really not even an issue but even like beyond that the fact that the set pieces do help make these dis like these distinctions it really you know it's a it's a part of the experience that helps keep it fresh even when places it it doesn't you know it sometimes can kind of fall apart in that area so it's you know it's good and um, the palaces also have their own unique colors to them as well so which uh which as a fun fact i believe wasn't a case in the original famicom release of that so you know have fun looking at gray for every palace that's uh sorry japan we got it a little better over here for the most part for the most part um, before we talk about the music, I will say, um, just to comment on the towns, I think it's very cool that they incorporated the towns. Um, they're all right. You know, they, you kind of, they lose their appeal a bit in the sense that you have the exact same sort of thing and reward to do in every single town. So they kind of start to blur together very much. I do really appreciate the NPC designs even at this level, they feel really distinct and really Zelda, especially like the male villager template um, for like, I am air, that guy. Um, <laughs> he feels like totally like a precursor to everything that we'll see in the series onward. 
Um, also just have to comment on the hilarity of like these. Okay, so the backstory in this game is that Link is now grown. He's supposed to be like 16 years old in this game. And I guess he is very grown because in every town you will find uh, two women who will help you out. There is a hag who will lead you into her house and she will restore your magic for you. And then there is this very sexual woman in a red dress who will take you inside her house and heal you and restore your life and you will come out better. Nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, so I just had a comment on that. I'm not offended by it as much as I think it's hilarious. Also, just there's something very robotic, uh, like kind of like, I don't know, it's almost like creepy. It feels almost weirdly video gamey to me because every town is like the same and like the people are moving around. So I think that's cool that they like at least picked up. But that robotic moving around sort of like pre-generatedness feels just as fake as like pre-generated, like sort of like those like crowds in like current video games where you can't interact with them. They're just like moving around and you're supposed to think that they're people and you're like, that's a simulation. So it kind of feels like weirdly simulation-y. Um, but then also just the hilarity that like every spell quest is like you talking to some woman in a blue dress and she says, oh, yes, thank you so much. Come talk to my father. He will help you. Like, what is this place? There sure are a lot of women who have who There's specifically There's so many women have... with really, really specific problems with fathers that can like teach you things. And it's just like, <laughs> it's somehow weird because it's the same thing like every single time. It's like, it's... <laughs> find my statue get Why? me water and that it's just like hilarious <laughs> that it's like this weird like madonna horror complex even exemplified in this game where like the only like npcs it's like the same i guess are there's there's like skinny men too yeah they there's have, like fat men they skinny look, men they look like stereotypical like old like old old like medieval yeah and the way they're like kind of i can't i can't the way they're oh, like that's right they got forward. the beards they, too yeah and then you have like they have like the old women that are like clearly like witches and then you have like the very sexy women and like those are like the people that exist in this game and then you have like the old women being like oh you found my child and i'm like found your child that is not your kid you're like 75 <laughs> years old that's ridiculous <laughs> But whatever, she gave me a spell, so I guess it's fine. It's totally cool now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They did their best. It's just something that's really funny to comment on. And it's like kind of, it feels weird. Good old NES game implications. Yeah. Just... Oh, so how do we... So the, the, the composer is different this time around. It's not Koji Kondo. We have a new composer. How do we feel about it? Yeah, so we got uh, got Akito Nakasuka standing in for Koji Kondo. He had, Kondo had no involvement uh, with this game in particular. And actually, even looking at his uh, history as well, we'll actually be seeing a bit of him in the future too. So it looks like he kind of stayed on board after this. Um, and he did well. He did good uh, overall. I think it might not be as iconic as the original Legend of Zelda. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to beat. And it's also even just trying to keep up with Kondo. I mean, come on. But all things considered, I mean, most of anyone, if you've ever played any game in, in the Super Smash Bros. series, I guess maybe except for the original, you should definitely recognize the temple theme, in it, which is the palace theme for this game, which is fantastic.
there's just a lot of little great little renditions here. This, the shorter pieces, like the battle theme, boss theme in particular, are, are good. They fit their, their parts really well. But then you have your more, um, kind of, again, fitting the grander scope of the adventure, you have the overworld theme, which is a great subversion of the original overworld theme in the sense that it starts off with the same kind of drive, the same kind of theme behind it, and then it just goes off into its own, uh, you know, completely different direction. Just overall, it's it's really good. I will, you know, before I dive into the rest of this, I will briefly mention uh, a distinction between the international and the Japanese release. And that's mainly that, for whatever reason, in between transitions from the Famicom, uh, which is the Japanese, you know, basically what we know as the NES over here, they have they had a Famicom disc system. And that's how they played their games. There's a difference between the music there and here, and we got some slight changes in melodies. Um, but also there is, I describe it as a flanger there. I don't know, maybe a vibrato might be a better descriptor of this effect, but basically the main two square waves, which basically provide the, the melody for a majority of the game. It's how, how they're basically utilized. They always, always have this kind of vibrato flanger effect to it. And it's, it's a, it's a little annoying. It's not the worst, but it's a type of thing that could like potentially annoy you if you're particularly keen to it. But apart from that, I think one thing that's definitely worth mentioning is compared to the really, really short melodies of the original, which kind of fit its pacing, to fit the long form action game that this is, these pieces, a lot of these, at least a couple, I would say the most important pieces in this game actually have, I guess what you could call B sections to them. That is to say that they loop once, come back around and then run through like a completely different section before they come back to it. And these, these really, they, for one, they do really help with, you know, keeping the songs from becoming too repetitive, but they also really do help with the scope of the adventure in the sense that well, they fill out the song length for one. So that's one part of it, but it's like the more time you're spending in these places, you're not just hearing the single bit of melody. It, it kind of, it brings, it brings the, the theme of adventure together better yeah i'm a big fan of the music i think it's i don't know i think it's really nice i think it suffers in the way that the game screen sort of change i guess in that like i like the music and yet i still find it's that transition it's it's going from the battle music going into the world map theme Every time I hear that world map theme, that it like starts to annoy me a little bit. Like, da, 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 da. I just wanted to like <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And it's not. I don't think I wouldn't really fault the music. I think I like the tunes themselves. It's sort of the way that they're molded and constantly changing. It almost brings more attention to the melody shift than if it was just constantly playing. And the I think the only music I just don't really like is like the town theme. it's the same theme every time and it's just i don't know it doesn't do it for me i'm not i'm not very high on the town theme <laughs> it, it's a place for me to go and do the various things i need to do and then get the heck out i don't really get excited by it i don't have any nostalgia for it or love for it per se so let's talk about what does this game mean within the context of the legend of zelda series starting from what it takes from the original. There's a lot of the, the mainly obvious elements just between heart containers, the fantasy itself really, or even just quite literally the fact that this is in a Northern section of Hyrule that we just learned about that 
it's like, oh, hey, this this area exists. I would say even just the idea of taking from the original's world of Hyrule and then immediately propelling that forward into being like, okay, and here's a new area, which is like the, is a part of, it's a continuous part of Hyrule uh, that wasn't really seen before and then kind of pushing it forward is kind of a big deal in its own right. There were really not a lot of games at the time that were doing that. They weren't like RPGs in some capacity. I mean, even Final Fantasy was, I mean, even for the majority of its lifespan has, has pretty much never done that either, um, deliberately so. But in this case, we have um, a series where the second game does this. I wouldn't get used to this either because it's not necessarily a, a trend in that sense. Uh, but it, it is cool to see it kind of pull from the original's world and kind of expand it in this way. And it really does help elevate it to a scope of an adventure in that sense. So I definitely, I like that aspect of it a lot. You know, it also brings the items forward in a way. Um, it's not in the most satisfactory way. The the most, you know, the most basic items in, Zelda, in the original Zelda that you know, we're end up being used as like kind of key items more that were just more like, okay, you have this item, so now you can go do this. But that was kind of like only a couple of them that did that in this case. But with Zelda 2, basically all the items operate in this function. I'm not the biggest fan of it, but especially since what you mentioned before, it's, I can't imagine a good way that you could you could implement those items that wouldn't kind of significantly de-emphasize the sword play. You're, you know, since you're working on a singular plane, where enemies are either at your height or a little bit above your height, having an item like a bow per se or a boomerang that could help maybe like stun them might be, you're not like fighting encounters with like 10 enemies on a screen where having like putting it, you know, having a boomerang stun two to three of them is a lifesaver. Here it's just, you're usually at the max fighting three enemies. Mm -hmm. And so having, I, I can't think of a good way to implement items, but I, kind of wish they looked into it more but nonetheless having them work as keys like this at least it's a little more interesting makes you kind of think of it a bit more and in another sense at least the the uh the power glove gets good you know good mileage throughout the game as well in its own in its own ways so it's not it's all all for naught but i think it's still good that they kind of bring these four because they do kind of help kind of keep it in the same spirit of the of the original game yeah i definitely agree i think the for me, the biggest thing about this is that it, it shows how strong and enduring just the straight-up Zelda aesthetic is. That the Zelda series truly is more flexible than we think it is, like how radical of a departure this is, but it keeps the main players in the game, it keeps Link, it keeps the Green Tunic, it keeps Zelda, it keeps Hyrule, and if it keeps all these sort of ideas, it you know, it's still, to me... To me, it still feels like a Zelda game. It doesn't feel that distant from everything else. Mm -hmm. You know, the core ideas are still there. It's just not a top-down Zelda. And the series is going to have to evolve in that way multiple times. So I think it's sort of exciting to see them experimenting at this stage of the game and willing to put the Zelda title and not just settling for the same thing but bigger and with more toys so i admire that about the game but i do think like i was saying earlier i i still think that the game feels you know it feels finite it feels arcadey it feels like i should just sink in another quarter and keep playing it it's not it doesn't feel so sprawling and malleable as the first entry did it, Hyrule felt like a place I could go out and explore and go, oh, I'm going to go over here. What's behind this corner? And all of those sort of things are kind of taken away. The game 
isn't going to be different each time I play it. Like the first game, I had multiple playthroughs and I played dungeons in different orders, not even necessarily intentionally. I just sort of did. There were choices to make and things to sort of stumble upon. And in the case of this game and its overworld, I think that that interaction is definitely a missed opportunity. The secrets you see are very straightforward and even the very few times where they're not, it's not even enjoyable in that way. It kind of feels like the game is cheating you to go search its corners, but not with any tools at your disposal, just with pure tedium and, ah, see, we gotcha. You didn't check that square, did you? And I personally don't find that super fun. I find it more so just annoying when that sort of thing happens. <laughs> so, but I'm not upset at certain things. I'm not upset at the cutting of items because you take away items and we get spells and you find spells through NPC interaction. And, you know, for most things in this game that's taken away, there's some sort of solution that's posed into the game, you know, but I also think that with the excitement of that is that they're able to take away these things that we so associate strongly with this series and they're able to replace them with other things. And as long as they function similarly, it's okay to remove them. It's all about trying to identify what the functions are, what needs to be there, what the feedback loop is, what the game experience should be, because then it doesn't matter if we get a hook shot or if we get a fire spell. Just the important thing is that for the sake of gameplay and what we do, it encourages exploration or it encourages new options in combat and encourages, it encourages new options. And that's a thing that this game lacks. This game feels similar from start to finish. You play the first two dungeons in the game, you get a sense of exactly what the game is going to be the whole time. It's never drastically going to change. I had a huge roadblock playing this game after the third palace because it just felt like I was just playing to get to the end credits because I had to get to the end credits to say that I did. <laughs> but the game doesn't iterate on its design. It doesn't introduce anything new between those points. It just gives you more of the same. For people who love that, then you're in for a treat here. But for people who are kind of looking for the game to iterate on itself, teach you new things, push you in a way... You're just going to get, you know, iron knuckles that are stronger with more defense, but you're not going to find that much new here. Yeah, I would say that the linearity, especially, gosh, I remember being younger and just always being like, linearity is 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 terrible, but really it's the matter of the function that it serves. Um, there are plenty of games that their linearity is a debilitating part, part of the design because so many elements are like... For linearity to work in particular versus non-linearity, and this is really a direct comparison between Zelda 2 versus Legend of Zelda, really, you know, the linearity allows for specifically designed challenges of which, you know, you're able to continue to escalate the challenge of the game by kind of, you know, again, as you said, kind of like iterating on itself, iterating these ideas and continuing to expand them. Zelda 2 does these in some ways, but not in ways... I don't, yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that I don't think there's enough there that allows it to expand in the ways that it needs to. You know, the downward stab and the, uh, you know, the downward thrust and the upward thrust in particular are two def like, you know, really solid expansions that do help to some degree with it. But I wouldn't say, I would say they're not significant enough. Magic is mostly, there's, you know, your obvious choices. Uh, shield and life are probably the, the two that immediately come to mind. Shield gets pretty cheap. 
uh, later down the line. Life never truly does, but you always, always need it. Any kind of self-preservation is super helpful. The rest of them have their own uses and some of them are required. Others are semi-useful in places and require some experimentation, which again, you're not gonna be as willing to kind of do here and there. Overall, it's it's still a good addition, um, but they don't really, ultimately, like what's there, it's pretty much entirely dependent on the core combat me mechanics. What's there is good. There is some definite nuance to these mechanics uh, and the way that you can use them, the way you can kind of use jumping crouch stabs to kind of hit Iron Knuckles specifically in a way that like you'll kind of not bypass their shield, but just hit like the lower half of their body as they're blocking their upper half at the same time. And it's it's a pretty cool trick. And then there's also the way that you kind of, you can cancel your landing lag, which is to say like the, the landing animation, like usually from having to kind of pull your sword back and then before being able to attack again, you can land with that attack and attack again. And all these things do add up to a system that definitely feels like it, it works has a good kind of sense of ebb and flow to it. But once you once you fought one iron knuckle, you've effectively like any kind of enemy that behaves in this manner, or even just one where you need to kind of consciously space yourself with, you've effectively fought them all in that sense. And there's really not much room for the system to go besides challenge you in ways that end up becoming like you just simply don't have the means to deal with. Usually, again, the dog head situation comes up because it's just the, it's you know it's the same ordeal where it's like yeah you don't. What are you supposed to do this? Like you, you know, you can master blocking as much as you want, and the game can just throw situations at you that are just simply not fair. And so, you know, I think largely this adds up to even like in the place of like set pieces that do kind of help, you know, make the challenges more interesting and like thematically, especially for like what the game is going for in terms of Ganon's minions trying to hunt you down to get you know to kill you and use your blood to revive him. It it, it does really add to like the impending threat and just kind of dread that goes into encountering these situations you know it still doesn't take away the sense that you you are you know effectively doing the same thing from start to finish whereas the original legend of zelda they visually like both visually and like thematically and just through gameplay you were growing the ways that you'd have you know additional tools in your toolkit to experiment with that you you know always have some access with they aren't always just draining resources on you're gaining, you know, more resources in order to be able to like survive against enemies. It doesn't feel like there's some kind of hard cap on. It really is placed in your hands on just how much you want to accrue, let alone like, you know, whether you find that stuff or not. And so that so much of that is placed in your hands where it's not with Zelda 2. It maybe fits better with Zelda 2 being a more linear game, but the, you know, the game still provides opportunities to explore as well, and it's just not really sufficient. And so by making it super linear, but then not making these like optional opportunities really that sufficient or that satisfying, it's, you know, it kind of results in experience that it's not just the challenge. The challenge does play a big part in it, but I found like just coming through it again, it's like, yeah, these are all really challenging and some sections are cheap here and there. Again, about, you know, like 85 to 15 is about the ratio as far as like the the good to the really stupid. <laughs> the really stupid is really stupid, but like overall, it's more so that, Oh yeah, I guess this is kind of all I have to look forward to. You really don't have anything to look forward to in that sense. It isn't like, oh, I got the ma like I'm getting the magic rod soon in dungeon five or, or like like five or six. I, I apologize if I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but you know you you have like once you like have already like learned Zelda one 
it doesn't take away that you now have things to look forward to or even go for as soon as possible as soon as you kick that game off like there's so many ways you can just outfit yourself yeah you can take you can take joy in road mapping and optimizing the game going oh i'm you know i know where this is so i can go and do this and i can go get this before I even do the first dungeon that sort of thinking of like oh i'm going to buff myself up or i'm not going to do this in this game that's just not it's not really even on the table yeah that the only real kind of risk assessment is how much you want to gamble with your experience as far as like oh you know what i should save up and get my attack up as soon as possible and it's something like i felt like at least early like in the first half of the game where you definitely need it the most i would say there's some amount of strategy to it but the game also gives you at least a a decent amount like enough amount of breathing room to work with that this isn't like a huge problem but by the time you're in the second half of the game most of your levels will just kind of naturally even out because for one you need pretty much all of them level up in some capacity but they'll start hitting experience levels that you just you simply just don't want to take the risk with it anymore and you sometimes just don't even need to per se you just are just like yeah i might as well just get life up next because well, I just, that's just the next thing I should get. I just, I just need it. And so you just get it because you really don't want to waste your time or your experience points with this kind of stuff. And so an experience system especially just doesn't fit the sense of uh, linearity when it's like, well, everything's pretty much paced out. Like it's paced out decently, if nothing else, but the result is still not, it's not terribly deep in that sense. And it's not, uh, you know, satisfying either. And then of course the penalty sucks so the experience is a purely negative one at you know at best so good a bright capper yeah (laughs) optimistic (laughs) so um wrapping it up uh what about this game do we remember the most Uh, pain (laughs) as i said before you know i'm mixed but when it comes to like the smaller details, again, I would say Link's control overall is awesome. It feels great to just jump and just do, just kind of screw around and whatnot. And it feels good, like just there's a sense of momentum to him. Like compared to this to Castlevania's Simon Belmont, who has this static jump, which is well suited to the game, but has like a very, very like strictly arcadey sense to it. That Link has this sense of momentum to him does give him like a good sense of interaction with the world that he is in. It does feel really good just to move around with him, and you can influence it, his his jump arc in particular, by building up a little bit of speed like by running for a little bit and uh, jumping. And then when you add the jump spell on top of that, it also affects this as well. There's just ways that like when your attacks bounce off enemy shields and whatnot, or there's a te- bounce off your shields that, that you kind of like recoil just a tiny bit. And there's a lot of just, there's a lot of good feedback here. There's a lot, when it comes to the sword combat itself, everything is really, really finely tuned. And so it all works the way it's expected to. The shield system and even just the stance, I guess if you want to call it a stance system, if, if we're calling too many things systems at this point, maybe. But, you know, it's really how you can stand. And that's where your attack is going to be placed. But also your shield is up there. So you block in standing form, but you're you're vulnerable at your legs. But you're, you, know, you basically attack at up top, um, allowing you to hit kind of tall enemies or like enemies that are a little bit in the air. And then crouching, you know, puts your shield down low, but exposes your head and it has a bit of a quicker strike to it. Like, again, if you like action games, there's there's definitely enough to it 
just within these mechanics alone that really that they are decently compelling even if they really don't evolve much they're simply just challenged to a greater degree there's a certain rhythm especially against axe wielding enemies in particular because axes they affect you know they effectively ignore shields so you have to be very precise but they have like a particular rhythm to them that you can kind of get used to hitting them at in a way that does like it feels really satisfying when you manage to do it and then when you fall off rhythm and just get clubbed in the head four times is pretty dreadful but it is you know it's punishing but it's you know it's entirely on you in that sense to land that but when you do it it does feel good and so i do at least very fondly remember that if nothing else and the magic system at least is a resource system despite its problems it's still kind of thing that there's ways that you can kind of expect like know when the game is going to give you resource like more resources in a way like when you're going to get kind of like magic potion drops and whatnot so it's you know i would say if nothing else to remember like at the very least its core generally works as well as it does um that's despite kind of all the other issues with the game that kind of lead to a somewhat bland overall experience uh so what do you remember the most about this game I just like never want to. I don't want to remember this game. Like I don't want to talk about it ever again. I'm just really. I'm just so done with it. It was such a. I'm proud of myself for getting through it. I'm proud of myself for seeing the credit screen. This game just felt. This game was homework. And I didn't. I don't know. There were points that I guess I did enjoy it, but. I think I really had that point halfway through where I just went, do I really have to just play the whole game? So I said, because I get it. I get what it's trying to do. I understand it. I don't know. It's just like the first couple of palaces I think are pretty fun. And I really remember the beginning of the game because I have to keep going back to it again and again. But <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I remember the first, you know, couple of palaces and, you know, the game feels fresh and everything. It's just like once I cross that big, once I get the raft, it just kind of feels like, please roll the credits and just put me out of my misery. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. There there are things that are good. I think the thing that really just kills the game for me is that it feels like, you know, you've seen a little bit, you've seen all of it. And I don't necessarily love when I'm playing so it's hard to keep going. While we were talking about this game, I literally already am like, oh man, I really want to go back and play the original because that sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, it just has that sort of way of like, I can forget it and come back to it and try to figure it out again. And I'm not sure at there, if there will truly be a point with this game where I can forget it and come back to it and feel like there's something to puzzle out or relearn or rediscover. Because I don't think I discovered that much the first time. I'm just so glad it's over. <laughs> I'm yeah. just glad it's over. Well, that's over with. Uh, so next episode, we'll discuss A Link to the Past. The SNES classic lays down the law for the series going forward, but does it leave something behind? Next time on A Retro Perspective. <laughs>